As always, after a week off, uh, I am anxious to get back up here and get get going again. There's something that uh, something about having having that week off, not being able to get up here and teach, and that regular rhythm just makes me ready to get up here and do it. Jeremiah describes it as a as a fire in his bones, and I can I can relate to that one. So uh, I'm ready to, to, to get going here. We're in the book of Luke, chapter 5, continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. And last, uh, last time that we, that we were together, uh, we saw that Jesus had begun uh, kind of his teaching, his healing ministry. He cast out demons. He had uh, done some, uh, started doing some of this stuff and was starting to get a bit of a reputation. He was starting to get a bit of a following. His reputation was starting to precede him whenever he would go into towns. He was getting more and more uh, popular. And this morning in chapter 5, we're going to jump into a series of stories here in chapter 5 and chapter 6 where uh, Luke is going to kind of showcase this idea that Jesus is truly for everyone. He's going to talk about it in a few different ways. He's going to kind of cover a lot of different things. And, uh, but, but each of these stories is going to kind of play off of the other one. So I tell you that just so you know, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to hit a lot of the same topics, a lot of the same points. In fact, I, I, I really thought about doing all of these uh, like four or five stories here together uh, in one sermon because he, he's really making one or two points, but uh, I didn't feel like that was going to work because each one of these stories kind of packs its own punch too. So uh, we'll spread this out over the course of a few weeks, but uh, Luke is trying to make a point here as he lays all of these things um, as he lays all of these things out. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read our text for the morning, Luke chapter 5, uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some of, 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 of where we're going to go with it before we actually start uh, breaking it down. So Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. And now even, but now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Short and sweet. Uh, not, not a whole lot to this story. You kind of read it. You can really gather what's going on pretty quick. doesn't take a whole lot of uh, explanation. But when we start meditating on this one, it, as I said, packs a punch. If someone were to ask you what the word discipleship means, how would you define that? If somebody were to, 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 to ask you, when you say discipleship, what do you have in mind whenever you say that. Uh, some of you may have a quick definition ready to go. You may be able to say, this is exactly what I mean whenever I say the word discipleship. Most of you probably have a vague idea of what it is, but you don't really know the words to go with it, how to describe it. You don't really know how you would say it. Really what you have more of is a, just a mental picture of what discipleship looks like whenever somebody asks you that. Um, and I would say that most of us in here, whenever we think about the process of discipleship, 
what we associate that with is probably some measure of gaining knowledge, some measure of being educated, some measure of learning, probably from one person or maybe uh, a couple of different people in your life. But the whole idea here is that you are learning and gaining knowledge, knowledge that ideally would lead to you acting different, but the whole idea of discipleship would be centered around knowledge. If someone told you that they were being discipled by someone, what would you picture? You would probably picture them sitting down at a table over a cup of coffee and and discussing something in the scriptures or maybe memorizing scripture together. You You would probably picture something that would look like that. That, that would be kind of tied to that, kind of asking questions, assigning and doing homework, that type of process. What if I told you that all of that is a good thing, all of that is a helpful thing, all of that process that you picture whenever we use the word discipleship is a good thing, but that it's not discipleship. It's actually not discipleship at all. So much of what the church has gotten wrong is because we make this one mistake. We have mistaken transfer of information for discipleship. But that is not discipleship. And I'll go one further. True discipleship is built around something that that we've all been taught to fear and that we can't trust. At least we should have a healthy skepticism of. Because discipleship is fundamentally about desire. Listen to how uh, author, his name is James K.A. Smith. Listen to how he describes this. What do you want? That's the question. It's the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. In the Gospel of John, it is the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his. To want what God wants. To desire what God desires. To hunger and thirst after God. And to crave a world where he is all in all. So do you, do you see the distinction in what I'm saying here between learning and knowing something versus what your heart desires and what your heart longs for, what your heart goes for? If you associate discipleship with knowledge, then what you are going to do is you're going to fill your head with knowledge and what happens to your heart is kind of a secondary benefit of that. But if you equate discipleship with what you want and what you desire, then the primary importance is shaping your heart around that thing in front of you. Now, knowledge can be a part of that. Knowledge should be a part of that. But that's not the primary function of discipleship. And I believe he's absolutely spot on. And if you watch Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels, he reflects this over and over. He never, ever teaches the disciples about facts about God. He never says, this is what you need to know about God, and then let me, let me list off all of these things about who God is. He teaches specifically with the purpose of affecting the disciples. He wants them to be changed by what it is that he tells them. 
He wants them to sense and feel the weight of the information and then be changed by that information. When he teaches them to pray, he doesn't lay out some acronym or some formula. He doesn't say that you do it just like this and let me show you exactly what is done. What he does is he gives an example and he provides them words that mean something. And what the prayer does is begin to shape a way of living that would reorder the lives of the of disciples and would reorder our own lives. Listen to the words that begin the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That isn't simply a matter of prayer that God would do his will. But that is a prayer that we would conform our will around his. Do you see how that works there? This isn't simply saying, you say these things because you know this about God. What it is saying is that as you pray, you are praying that God would conform your will to his. That when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. What we're saying is, God, conform my will to that reality that is in front of us. That prayer would shape our desires. And this is how Jesus teaches all throughout the Gospels, over and over and over. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we're taught that our desires are a bad thing, that they are to be squashed and rejected, that self-control is about the, the acceptance, the acceptance of, uh, of something that we don't want over and above something that we do want. This is what self-control is, right? It's a matter of taking what you really want to do and not doing that and instead doing something you want to do a little bit less. That's what we're told the idea of self-control is. After all, isn't, that, uh, isn't the desire to eat from the fruit of the tree what got us into the mess that we're in? This is the whole point, is that desire should be, should be, should be feared and should be, at, at best, kept at arm's length. We don't want to give in to our desires, right? We use that kind of language all the time. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. Desire is not the problem. It's the desired object and the desired outcome that are the problem. Our pursuit of discipleship is not that we would know more. It isn't that we would even want less, but that our desire would be stronger than ever, but that it would be rightly ordered after the right things. That our desires would be crafted by the kingdom of God in a world that is quite literally hell-bent on manipulating our desires. So what I want for you this morning is not that you would reduce your desires, but instead that you would point your desires in the right direction and that you would pursue the right thing. Now, how's that for an introduction? It's what happens when you give a preacher a week off. Uh, you, get a, you get an introduction like that. So now let's get into our text and to see how this plays out in this story that we have this morning. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. I'll read it again. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And this is pretty straightforward, like I said before. But we need to make sure we have an accurate picture of what is happening here because we can read through this and familiarity can kind of move us past the weight of what is happening here. Jesus is going throughout these cities in Judea. He's going throughout these cities. He's got this new band of followers with him. He's got uh, all kinds of, of people that are hearing about the miracles that he's done and the teaching that he's 
that he's been doing, and they're all interested. So he's got uh, a crowd of people that are following him. His entourage and his audience is growing. His reputation precedes him. And as he comes into town, a man pushes his way toward Jesus, and he wants to be healed. Now, we, we read that, we read by that quickly, but you need to understand what is happening whenever this man shows up in front of Jesus. It wasn't just that what this guy was doing was frowned upon, although it very much was. It was illegal. What he was doing in front of Jesus should not be happening at all. He was a leper, some sort of outward skin disease that could be easily kind of identified. He was someone who, who had been identified as, as unclean, and it says he was full of leprosy. So this is not like, you know, some psoriasis on his elbow. This guy has got something going on, some sort of disease that can be identified by outsiders very easily, very quickly. Everyone knew him for this. He was ostracized. He was banished. He couldn't be in town. He couldn't be around people. He couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't have friends. He couldn't give someone a hug. He couldn't shake someone's hand. He could do nothing. The impact of this disease was terrible physically. But it was devastating spiritually and, phys and socially. So for him to show up and cast himself down in front of Jesus would have been unheard of. Any Jew that came in contact would have been subjected to a massive list of rules that they would have had to abide by just to be allowed back into the, the temple. In fact, I, I want to show you something here. Go ahead and put that next slide up there. All right, so do you see that? That's Leviticus chapter 13, uh, at least to start with. This is all the rules for how you are to deal with lepers. All right, keep going to the next one. And the next one. And the next one. Do you see that? That's two chapters in the book of Leviticus. That is all the rules for how to deal with a leper. Just those two chapters. There's more in Leviticus that talks about this, but this is just the specific part. So go all the way back to that first slide again. Just kind of keep rolling through that. Let the weight of that, that is seven-point font right there. Let the weight of that just kind of keep washing over you. The weight of that text was on this man's shoulders every day whenever he woke up. Every day he was defined by the weight of that text. Every day. I thought about reading all that just for effect, but I thought y'all would fall asleep on Time Change Sunday, so I didn't. Um, but this is who he was. A man full of leprosy. Even today, that's how we know him. We don't know his name. We just know him as a man full of leprosy. That so defined his existence on this planet. It defined his friends, or lack thereof, his family, or lack thereof, his, his ability to go to the temple or inability to go to the temple, his ability to be around people, to touch people, to hug people, to love people, to be with people, all of that was defined by his leprosy. It is who he was. And then he comes and he casts himself down in front of Jesus and asks to be healed. 
He asks in a brilliant way that shows the depth of his faith. He says, if you are willing, if you are willing, Jesus. This man had heard enough. He knows that Jesus can heal him. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, do you have the power for this? If you do, prove it. He comes to Jesus and he says, I know you have the power to do this. I've heard the stories. I've seen what you've done in other cities. I've seen what you've done here or there in the countryside. I've seen what you've done. I know you have the power, but if you are willing, Jesus, heal me. And he wants to know Will he heal him? He isn't lacking faith in the power of Jesus, but that Jesus would want to do it for him. For so many of us, this describes exactly how your faith works. Not that God can do things. We know he can. But will he do things for us? Will he do it on my behalf? It's a fair question to ask. The psalmist laments constantly about how God doesn't seem to play fair when it comes to who receives blessing, how the the wicked prosper. Jeremiah chapter 12 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. So he's saying, he's saying, I believe that you're righteous, but hear my complaint here. I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all of the treacherous thrive? Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if this is how God works, the just and the unjust and the wicked prosper, how can this man approach Jesus with any kind of confidence and say, Will you heal me? If God can do it, the question isn't can he, but will he? And our finite minds cannot know the mind of God or why things happen. That he is different from us is an answer that must suffice. And here's the thing. All of that is true. All of that is true. And maybe for you this morning, that's a satisfactory answer to to say that, that, that God acts on his own accord, that he does not share our... Uh, our view of the world, and God does as he sees fit. All that is true. But here's the thing. That theology is almost meaningless when you're suffering. It doesn't make it less true, but it's almost meaningless when you are the one that is suffering. To this man with leprosy in this moment, with Jesus standing in front of him, and leprosy tearing his body apart for year after year after year after year, he doesn't need a theology lesson. He doesn't need information. He doesn't want theology. He wants something so much more. And here's my question. As I skim through this, like I, I, before I preach a series, I'll, I'll try to read through the, the, the book several times to get a sense of of kind of the overall message of the book. And I remember as I skimmed through this, and then even a couple of weeks ago when I began preparing this message, is, is, is how do I preach this text to a room full of sufferers? How do I stand up here and not make this some abstract theology lesson that says if you're not healed, it's because Jesus didn't want to? How do I stand up here and preach a message like that? 
And hear me, I, I'm, not, I'm, not say, I'm not talking about one or two people. We are all sufferers, all of us. Now, what we're going through in this moment and how intense the suffering is, is different for each one of us. But we are all sufferers in a world that is broken by sin. Some more visible than others, some more acutely than others. This week, I, I, I spoke with someone that described their life as an ongoing bout with pain. When the emotional pain lifts, the physical pain is always there. And when the physical pain lifts, the emotional pain is always there. So how can I, a preacher, stand here and look each of you in the eye and tell you that, that and, and, and when Jesus tells this man, I am willing, how can I stand here and preach this message to us, a bunch of sufferers? Luke 5.13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Why is Jesus seemingly willing for some, but not for others? Not for you, not for us. Don't, don't misunderstand. We rejoice with the man full of leprosy being healed. This is something that we should celebrate, that Jesus has the power to do this. But what about us? That's not an abstract question. That's not an ivory tower theology, let's debate this in a seminary class question. This is a today question. Is Jesus willing? And after wrestling with that for a long time, I realized something. I had this story all wrong. I've gotten this story all wrong because I had completely missed the whole point of the story that Luke is telling. I missed the entire motivation of this man full of leprosy. I missed what I should have been longing for and desiring the whole time. Because you see, I want Jesus to end my pain and to end my suffering and to end my frustrations and to end my hurt and to end all of those things. That is my desire. It is keyed in on me and my suffering. I want Jesus to make it all better and to make my life the dream that I had always wanted it to be for myself. That's what I want. But you see, what I want is a reflection of what I love. And what this leper wanted was a reflection of what he loved too. And I wonder if anyone can see what my mistake was here. Let's read it again. Luke 5, 12, 13. See if you can pick out my mistake as I meditate on this passage. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. According to verse 12, what did the man want? He didn't want to be healed. He wanted to be made clean. And that changes everything about this passage. No doubt he wanted to be healed. No doubt he wanted to be healed. But that's not what he asked Jesus for. 
What he wanted was rooted in his relationship with God and his ability to worship him. He didn't come to Jesus and say, let me tell you about my world of pain and suffering. Let me tell you about how how terrible my life has been. Can you heal me and remove that suffering so that I can just hug my mom? So that I can have a life. So that I can go to temple and worship God. He didn't say, heal me of my physical suffering and my emotional suffering. What he said was, make me clean. He was more concerned about his place in God's kingdom than he was about his suffering in his own kingdom. Can you imagine living this man's life day in and day out, waking up in pain, alone, and ostracized? No chance of making friends, no chance of hugging someone, no chance of going to temple to offer a sacrifice for your sins, no chance of community, and then you have the chance to be rid of the physical condition that has brought your life to ruin, and you choose not to ask for healing for that physical condition, and instead you choose to, to, to pursue a spiritual reality first. This man was coming to Jesus, was coming to Jesus, a rabbi, and he wasn't asking for information to be a student. This man was coming to Jesus so that he could rightly worship God for the first time in his life. Does that minimize his suffering in any way? Absolutely not. Does that mean it would be wrong for him to want to be healed physically? Absolutely not. But what it means is that he has been taught to want what is best. Not what is obvious or immediate. And this is what he teaches us this morning. He teaches us to want well. You see, you see if, 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 he has, if he is made clean, then what he is able to do is he is able to go to temple. He is able to take a sacrifice. He is able to rightly restore his relationship before God. He's not dependent on a priest to do that on his behalf. He is able to offer that sacrifice for his own sin. He is able to worship in a way that he's never been able to before. What he wants now is, is a relationship with God that is rightly restored. Now all that's like all tied up in the physical and, and, and we, we could talk forever about how those things are, are tied together and inevitably being clean means that the leprosy is healed. But that's not his primary focus. What he wants is to be made And so the question for you this morning, and and, and if you want to say you're a disciple of Jesus, that doesn't mean I know things about Jesus. It doesn't mean I have these verses memorized about Jesus. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, the question is, what do you want? What do you want? No doubt, right now, some of you guys have got a scene from the notebook playing in your head. Am I right? The, the what do you want, right? You guys have got that playing in your head that's going on, and that's actually really helpful for us this morning. Because that scene where he's just like, what do you want? What do you want? Like he just keeps asking, what do you want? That scene where that happens, 
that is actually a very helpful tool for discipleship. To press you past your, 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 your kind of like general idea of just making it through life. Because I don't think we take the time to stop and to think about what we really want. I think we just wake up and we just go. Very few of us take the time to think about what we really want. And even fewer of us try to craft our desires to what is truly best. But that is what discipleship is. Keep asking yourself, what is it that you want out of this life? How have your desires been shaped? What is it that you hunger for? What is it that you long for? When you close your eyes, what do you dream of? No doubt this man wanted healing physically. But what he wanted at his core was to be made clean. To see what is broken in his life and see it be made whole. To have what has put him outside the camp, as it's described in the book of Leviticus. To make him one with God again. And that is a prayer that when you offer it and you say, God, make me clean, the answer is always, I am willing. Always. That is a prayer he will always answer. Luke 5, 14. And he charged him, not to, tell, or charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. We're going to talk a little bit more about that verse next week because... Next week's story kind of plays into what all is going on there. But for now, see how he, he, how he it says to go and show yourself to the priest and to make an offering. Um, it, it kind of it, it tells him, hey, here's what you need to do. That comes from the, 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 Levit, the Leviticus passage that I showed you earlier, Leviticus chapter 14. I'll, I'll read just a couple of verses from that. I want you to hear this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp. So, so he's brought to the priest, but the priest doesn't deal with this guy in the camp because he's too dangerous. The priest has to go outside the camp, out of town, away from everyone else. And the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take, and then you've got all of chapter 14 of all the things the priest has to do in order to certify this guy as clean. Massive, massive list of stuff that has to happen. All kinds of crazy things that the priest has to do and that the healed man has to do. But notice the priest isn't doing the healing, and the priest isn't even making the man clean. All he's doing is the, the, the rituals by which he could be declared clean. But in the end, the priest is unable either to heal him or to actually make him clean. Jesus, on the other hand, declares both of these things to be true, and then he does it. He, he heals him, and he makes him clean. Jesus does what the law, the priest, and the sacrificial system could not do. He heals, but more importantly, he cleanses. And then, look at this. Just a, this is more of an aside, but I think it's an important thing to note. After all that must be done to declare this man clean, 
the super detailed, very difficult, very specific rituals that have to happen for this guy, has to happen uh, in the temple, has to happen in this man's home, has to happen with this man's family. All these things that have to happen. You get here to, to Leviticus chapter 14, 54, and look at this. Leviticus 14, 54. This is the law for any case of leprous disease, for an itch. For leprous disease in a garment or in a house, and for a swelling or an eruption or a spot, to show when it is unclean and when it is clean, this is the law for the leprous disease. So much as an itch, and he's right back in the same place again, unclean. Just an itch. Can you imagine the paranoia this guy would live, would live with? Like, like you, you go to the doctor and you have to have a procedure done. They're like, don't move. And immediately your nose itches, right? Like, you, 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 you want to, like, scratch something. This guy can't, can't scratch his arm in public because they'll declare him unclean again. And they'll send him back outside the camp and he'll have to go through the whole thing again just because he's, he's got a little itch, just because he, he scratched his arm just a little bit. Can you imagine the fear that you would live with that this would come back? What would you do if you started like feeling a spot on your on your elbow? Or like something was starting to itch and you didn't know why? What would you do? You'd cover it up, right? You'd hide it. You'd make sure nobody saw it. You'd try to keep it out of sight. You'd make sure that it was hidden so that nobody realized that you were unclean again. For so many of you, that is the, the state of your spiritual life. You come to Jesus and you said, Lord, make me clean. He has heard your prayer. He has saved you. He has forgiven you of your sins. And then you've gone back into life and you've found yourself in a place where, where you have sinned again, where you have, you, have, you have gotten in a place where you, you realize just how unclean you were and you've convinced yourself, I got an itch again. Or maybe, maybe you really did. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're back into a place where you just can't shake a sin. And what you've done is now you hide it. Maybe you show back up in the church and you're here, but you hide it. Nobody can know that you're struggling with this. Nobody can know that you did this. Nobody can know that you thought this. Nobody can know that you felt this. And you think that somehow by showing up, it, would, it will fix everything. But you hide, and you pretend, that you're not, you pretend that you're not dealing with this stuff. You pretend that you don't have another itch. But that's not how it works when we get to the new covenant. When we get to the new covenant, this doesn't hold anymore. We don't, we don't hide whenever we've got a scratch. We don't, we don't hide. In fact, what we do is we say, man, I'm struggling. I feel like maybe this is coming back. Will you help me? For some of you, this is what following Jesus is like. And you fear that every time you make a misstep, every time sin drags you down, every time you give in to a sin, that you're back outside the city, outside of a relationship with God. You're back outside the camp. And you live in a spiritual life trying to deny, hide, and cover up your sin for fear that, that someone will know you for who you really are and banish you all over again. But when Jesus makes you clean... It's not like the sacrificial system of the priests. 
When Jesus makes you clean, he does so completely. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The sacrifices don't make anyone clean. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, not until they itch again, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to, to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the gospel that we would be made clean and that we would be made clean over and over and over again because of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of the blood of Jesus, our sins are covered. And we don't have to worry about that time whenever that itch comes back and we fail again because when he offers a sacrifice for those that are being sanctified, for those that are being made more like him, he does it once for all. Not perfect but standing in the offering of sin that Jesus became on our behalf, our sacrificial lamb, and our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. And then you see this too. It says that the laws will be written on their hearts and will be written in their minds. He will put laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Do you know what that is? Our desires are changed. Sanctified and then a new thing written on our hearts. That's discipleship. And God's doing that for us. So my question is, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? It's fine to want to be healed. But the better thing is, or do you want to be made clean? This man full of leprosy knew the difference in the two, and that changed everything. The man didn't need a sermon. He didn't need a lecture. He didn't even need a Bible. He needed Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I've, I have literally staked my entire life on knowing and teaching the Bible. I'm not minimizing the importance of knowing and understanding the scriptures. But the goal is Jesus. The goal is always Jesus. The goal is a heart that is transformed and fixed on Jesus. A heart desperate for Jesus. This man was desperate when he threw himself in front of Jesus. And I just wonder, how desperate are you this morning? Or did you just get up and come to church? Because that's the thing. That's what we do. This man was desperate for Jesus. He wanted Jesus. What do you want? Let's pray.
Father, this morning it is our confession that our desires are so often disordered. That we want things tied to our own kingdom, to our own lives, to our own comfort, to our own, our own worlds that we have built. Father, I pray that you would, you would bring us to a place of repentance, that our desires would be, would be formed around you and your kingdom. Father, for those in here this morning that are tempted to hide, I pray that you would bring them out, that they would no longer hide because they, they, they feel like they would be banished or, or ostracized again, but they would, they would come out and they would, they would stand on the blood of Jesus. Father, for those in here this morning that have never wanted anything but their own kingdom, I pray that you would break them, that you would shatter them of that desire. And that they would be like this man, full of leprosy, desperate for the love and the healing touch of Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.